A Chinook helicopter operating in the North Sea is picking up passengers from an oil rig, but when they take off, something goes wrong. What caused this flight to crash into the frigid waters of the North? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And this is the third time we're recording in the span of a couple days. And we're going to record again tomorrow. Woo! So, nothing's changed. We have no new housekeeping. No. There's been nothing. It's been 24 hours since we last recorded. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have for you. You may hear me chewing gum. My stomach's not feeling great. So, I'll try to stay away from my microphone because I know people get triggered by the... The nice chewing ASMR. Yeah. Some people really like it, some people really hate it. So I'll try to stay away from my mic. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So, without further ado, I guess, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we're covering. This does not have a flight number, <laughs> and I'm sorry. This is the 1986 British International Helicopters Chinook crash. Thank you to our patron, Will, for recommending this crash. Thanks, Will. Didn't he also recommend the other crash? He recommended one, the two episodes ago, and then the next episode is also his recommendation. I see. Thanks, Will. Okay. This accident happened on November 6th of 1986. This was a Boeing Vertol, or vertical takeoff and landing, BV-234LR Chinook. Yes, this is a Chinook. I had a scooter. Yep, it's a twin rotored helicopter. So it has Aren't all helicopters twin rotors. No, most are s- technically single rotor and then one tail tail rotor, which oh, is that, different. That's what I meant. No, no this, this is twin. Rotors. This is twin main rotors. Oh, oh, okay. And one at the forward, one at the rear of the aircraft. Kind of like like military. It helicopter. is military. Oh. This is technically yes. This is the. Commercial version of the military Chinook. Oh, 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 the, the big, big helicopter. Yeah, it is big. Okay, got it, got it. The one you can hear from like five miles away. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah yep. it's such a stealthy approach for military conditions. Yes. You hear the boop, 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 boop. Yeah, literally. Yes. <laughs> you look up, you're like, where the hell is that coming from? Yep, Chinook. So this one's tail number is Golf Dash Bravo Whiskey Foxtrot Charlie, and it goes by Foxtrot Charlie in the report. So this BV-234LR is quite literally just the commercial version of the CH-47C Chinook. So, yes, military is the Chinook. This is the commercial version. They're basically the same thing in all ways, shape, and form. Just this one's commercially owned one, and operated. Yeah. <laughs> one is used by the military and the other is not. I didn't no. know until this that it was manufactured by Boeing. Yep. It's a Boeing venture. Good for them. It's one of the very few times they actually got involved in... Helima Scooters? Helima Scooters. Not the last, though. The captain. There's no names. He's 45 years old. He is male. He has 10,130 hours total, of which 2,550 hours were on the Chinook. So, fair amount. He's pretty experienced overall and on the helicopter. The first officer is also 43 years old and a male. They're two years apart and male. Solid. He has 4,995 hours total, of which 185 hours are on the type. So... He's newer to the type, but he's experienced. I would guess that they started flying airplanes first, not helicopters. Not Actually, no. always. Actually, no. Both of these are helicopter pilots only. They might have, like, 
Some fixed wing. Some fixed wing, but sometimes helicopter pilots are only helicopter pilots. Their airline transport rating, because they were both airline transport rated, but they are specifically, they were airline transport rated for helicopters only. Also, in the UK, it is airline transport license. Yes, license. Yes, here we call them ratings and certificates, and actually... It's the same thing. No, it's not, though. So... Just a quick point Just of clarification. you're allowed to fly the aircraft. <laughs> it does, but here's the biggest difference between your driver's license and a private pilot certificate. Because everybody says private pilot's license, but that's not what it is. It's a certificate. Your license expires. A so, certificate does not. Does the license expire in the UK? It might. Per their regulations, it so, might. I don't know in the UK. Maybe they do expire, or maybe they used to. Yeah, but don't. You have to, like, stay up on hours to, to yes. keep... Yes, in order to maintain your rating and your certificate, you still have to maintain currency. Yeah. Which is not the same. You you will still always have your private pilot certificate unless the FAA rescinds it. It will never expire. If you lose your... If your driver's license expires, you have to take the test over again, right? Like, if it expires and you don't renew it, you have to take the test over again. I don't think so. You have I, to start from scratch, basically. I think you just have to pay a really, really, really big fee. That, too. Type ratings and class ratings do expire. That's all I have found so far. I have also found the first thing that popped up was that from January 1st, 2021, your UK-issued air transport license, pilot's license, is no longer valid to operate an aircraft registered in an EASA member state because of Brexit. Brexit. That so. would suck. You'd have to get a whole new certification in airline transport. That does suck. Anyway, we went off on a tangent. Okay. This helicopter is normally based in Aberdeen in the UK. Instead, it was serving the Brent oil fields at the time in the North Sea near the Shetland Islands. Does this all sound familiar? Yeah. Bristol helicopters. So, it had been temporarily based at Sumberg. In the Shetland Islands, instead of being in Aberdeen. So it's in the Shetland Islands, period. It's it's out there. They had arrived in the Shetland Islands into Sumberg on November 3rd, so three days before the accident. After a couple of days of shuttling workers to and from the oil fields, an oil leak, ironically, was discovered on the left engine gearbox on the evening of the 5th of November. It was believed to be a breather pipe, so it was replaced and the crew performed a ground run of the helicopter the next morning, at which time it was determined that the oil leak was fixed. On that same morning of November 6th, 40 passengers boarded the helicopter along with the two flight crew and a cabin attendant. Yes, they had that. At 8.58 a.m., the helicopter lifted off from Sumberg. The helicopter went on to make three stops at oil rigs and the Brent oil fields on the outbound leg, exchanging passengers and cargo at each stop. Eventually, the helicopter was ready to return back to Sunberg, and at 10.22 a.m., the helicopter lifted off from the Brent Platform C, Charlie, with a full load of 44 passengers and three crew. They climbed to 2,500 feet and followed Track M, Mike, for the helicopter main routes back toward Sunberg. At 11.08 a.m., they were 40 miles from Sunberg, and the crew reported their position to the approach controller. 
The air traffic controller reported that they had them on the radar and then cleared them to change route away from the boundary of the Sumberg Special Routes Zone in the direction of the airfield. So, basically, you can deviate now and just come directly to the airfield. It's basically what they told him. They were also cleared to descend down to 1,000 feet at 100 knots. At 11.22 a.m., the flight was passed off to the tower controller at Sumberg. As they neared Sumberg, the air traffic controller informed the flight about a Coast Guard helicopter, a Sikorsky S-61N, that was departing from the airfield at the time for a training exercise. The captain acknowledged this and informed the controller that they were four and a half miles out from landing. The air traffic controller then cleared them to land on helicopter runway 24. All different things. There was, however, no response from the flight to this. In fact, they would never be heard from again on the radio. Because simultaneously to that call from the air traffic controller, within the helicopter, the crew heard a noticeable increase in the engine noise. It got a lot louder. One of them noted that it sounded like a roaring noise. Immediately after that remark, they heard and experienced an enormous bang that came consequent with a complete loss of control and the tail of the aircraft dropping nearly vertically downward. So they suddenly pitched nose up. Subsequent with the bang. How would that, like, did the back rotor stop working? We'll talk about it. The captain of Miranda. <laughs> we'll talk about it. I'm trying to use my deductive reasoning Your wrinkle skills. Brain? The wrinkle yes, brain. Yes, using the big wrinkle brains, okay? <laughs> Your wrinkle brain works too well sometimes. <laughs> kind of. It's more if complicated they, okay, than that. You're telling me they're like this, and then they pitch up like this. The only way that that can really happen in my brain is the back rotor stops working. <laughs> We'll talk about it. And there's, there's a giant bang and engine noise. Hello. There's This is far more complicated than that. We'll get there. The captain applied full forward cyclic pitch control, but with no response from the helicopter. So cyclic is how they control basically the pitch of the rotors, and that's how they change direction of flight, things like that. So he's applying full cyclic forward, and the helicopter is not coming back forward. The aircraft did, however, eventually pitch over to one side and dove toward the sea nose first from a height of about 150 feet. A witness nearby the airport looked out toward the sea and saw an orange-colored object falling toward the sea and weaving from side to side from a height of about 300 to 400 feet. He then saw the lower set of rotor blades separate from the fuselage and fly off to the right. He and the tower controller, as well as several witnesses on fishing boats, saw the helicopter hit the water, causing an enormous splash. The tower lost visual and radio contact with the flight completely. The nearby Coast Guard helicopter, a short time later, reported seeing two inflated life rafts floating in the water just east of the Sumberg Airport, in the sea. A short time later, they spotted aircraft wreckage floating in the sea, and saw a survivor clinging to a large piece of the wreckage. They quickly dropped down and began winching the survivor up. As they were doing so, they saw several bodies floating in the sea, seemingly dead. They did, however, notice one other survivor clinging to the side of one of the life rafts. He was also quickly winched aboard the Coast Guard helicopter, then they continued searching. After some time, having seen no signs of any other survivors, and with weather deteriorating, they opted to head to Lerwick, which is 18 miles north of Sumberg, to drop the two survivors where they would be taken to Lerwick Hospital. In the meantime, many other civilian and service aircraft and boats searched the area for survivors, but found none. All of the floating bodies, however, were recovered and taken to the Sumberg airport. In all, 
43 passengers and two crew perished in the accident. That means that one crew and one passenger were injured but survived. That's right, one of the crew. The captain was the one was one of the two survivors. How long did it take for them to get to the survivors? I'm sure you already said this, but... It was within minutes. The oh. Coast Guard helicopter was already airborne and pretty much watched all of this happen. Oh, okay. It was 10 minutes. Yeah, it was fast. A three-man AAIB, or Air Accidents Investigation Board, team went with Deepwater One, a 98-meter-long diving support ship, that evening to the crash site to search for sunken wreckage. The deep-water search began at 9 a.m. the next morning, however. The ship used a lot of advanced equipment, including a submersible vehicle with a camera to search for sunken pieces. They did all of these things in 1986. They had it all. I mean, they had... All sorts of equipment. They had a whole list of things that they used on this ship, and I was like, this seems really irrelevant. They used all of this equipment to search. I get it. <laughs> they quickly located the wreckage at about 90 meters deep. By early afternoon, they had recovered the cockpit voice recorder and the cockpit section of the fuselage, with the forward transmission and rotor still in place. They were pulled up to the deck of the ship. A second ship an oil exploration diving ship, was brought into the mix for the wreckage recovery. It took until November 14th for the wreckage recovery to be completed. They found most of the transmission system, forward and aft. Eventually, much of the wreckage was moved to the second ship and then taken to a hangar at Aberdeen for further review by the AAIB. The aft transmission and rotor were found separately from the rest of the wreckage. They located the rotor blades, which were color-coded, much like the Bristol helicopter's crafts. Each rotor had a corresponding blade with the same color on the forward transmission and the rear transmission. So there was a red on the forward and a red on the rear, and a yellow on the forward and a yellow on the rear. The search also included recovering bodies from the seafloor. In all, 44 of the 45 bodies of those who perished were recovered, but one never was. Got swept out to sea. Yes, it's unfortunate. It sucks. But... That is the whole of it. It happened fast. So, this investigation was performed by the... AAIB. Yes! yes. As we said multiple times by now. Yes! <laughs> I asked her if she wanted me to leave that in there, and she said yes. I said okay. So, that being said, I want to throw in something a little fun here. So, we know that the AAIB sends the report to the Secretary of State for Transport, ending the message with... I have the honor to be your obedient servant. Initial, initial, last name. Yes. Pretty standard now. Here's the fun part. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, D.A. Cooper. Not D.B. Cooper. <laughs> That's hilarious. How ironic is that? <laughs> so. Just a side note. Yeah. And this is crazy. in the 80s, like not long after yeah. D.B. Cooper. That's kind of crazy. So I, I thought that was fun. Anyway, amidst the wreckage, as Nick mentioned, the cockpit voice recorder was found. Though most helicopters are not required to have one even to this day, which is a contentious point. So good on the operator for installing it. Yes. Didn't the other one that we had, that was... Yes. Yeah. yeah. The other helicopter crash we cover had Yes, it. the Bristol had it too, yes. Yeah. Good job, guys. Also installed was an engine health monitoring system. And it was a trial installation and was not at all required to be airworthy. It's designed to record 10 parameters from each engine on a solid-state recorder. Pretty revolutionary for the time. 
but it was impossible to recover any data due to impact. Bummer. Also, the cassette hadn't been changed before the accident flight, so it sounds like it wasn't even designed to overwrite the previous data, so it wouldn't have been relevant data anyway. Pretty worthless. So that's fine. The rotor wreckage showed that the blade damage came from a quote-unquote severe localized disruption of two blades from each rotor and a gross disruption of the third blade from each rotor. That's a very nice and technical way of saying that something happened where the yellow rotor blades from each rotor glanced off each other, which sped up the forward rotor and slowed down the aft rotor. So then the subsequent blades hit two, and then the aft pylon transmission and rotor all detached from the helicopter. Oh, that's nice. So, yeah. It so just fell off the helicopter. Both rotor yeah. blades, they, they, both, they collided. both rotors collided. With one another, and then the rear, the entire engine assembly, rotor, and all, with the three blades at the rear of the helicopter, separated and went for its own dive in the ocean. Question. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you'll get to this. Yes. But, like, they're not supposed to <laughs> They're definitely other, not like... supposed to do that. <laughs> you might they're ask. They're definitely designed not to do that. You might ask. But these helicopters are specifically designed so that the rotors are synchronized. Yeah, that. Exactly. Like, they're not supposed to do that. So what happened? Okay. You see, what happened was... What what happened was... While sorting through the wreckage, investigators found a large quantity of metal fragments inside the Ford transmission. And not the kind that you would expect would come from water impact. This is the kind of damage that would have happened just before the catastrophe. Once the investigators were settled and could do a little more in-depth analysis rather than, you know, on the deck of a ship, they found a lot. And I'm going to do my best to describe what they found, but please look at the pictures on the website because I have a lot. Fair enough. Let me first describe the Ford Transmission gear train. The rotor shaft goes up vertically up to the rotor blades, and that's what spins them. Further down is the second stage sun gear and the first stage sun gear. When I reference sun gear, I'm referencing the first stage. These gears look just like when a child draws a sun where it's a circle with a bunch of spikes coming out. That's why it's called a sun gear. Makes sense. Further down the gear is the ring gear with a spiral bevel. And that gear is driven by the pinion gear, also with a spiral bevel. This is the part that's kind of hard to describe. These two gears, the ring and the pinion, meet at an angle which is why they have to have spiral bevels. The rotor shaft is vertical, and the pinion gear is coming at it from a slightly lower than horizontal angle. And this pinion gear is driven by the synchronizing shafting, which runs along the roof of the helicopter towards the aft transmission. So the aft transmission is driving the forward transmission, and this is how they're synchronized. Right. And to be clear, the forward rotor does not have its own engine up front. No. It runs off the same engines the rear does. Makes sense? Yes. Much like when you have an all-wheel drive car, your engine might be at the front, but in order to get power at the rear wheels, it has to use this same basic principle with these gears that run all the way to the rear. So, main point here is that the ring and the pinion gears meet at an angle. So, the teeth of the pinion gear and the ring gear were both severely damaged, and the pinion had shifted closer to the rotor gear. All very concerning. When they took the upper half of the transmission off, investigators found that the ring gear had a gap on its rim that was three quarters of an inch wide. 
That's horrifying. <laughs> That's terrible. They further pulled apart the component and found that it wasn't just a fracture in the rim. It went through most of the ring gear to the point that the ring gear had expanded and hit the housing of the transmission. So, my question is, is it is it a maintenance problem? Like, they should have found this? Oh man, no. we will get there. Heavily separated. It heavily separated. Like, that's... You, you can see that from a mile away. Yes. It also had a circumferential fracture starting at the break in the rim and went around the flange where it connected to the flange of the sun gear shaft. And it was at least 60% of the circumference. It's kind of... You can kind of see it in this picture, but you see that gap there? Oh, yeah. That goes around 60% of it. Yikes. Yeah! I'm surprised it didn't just break off. As were they, probably. The circumferential crack turned out to actually be an accumulation of many smaller cracks. And when taken apart, the surface of the crack showed evidence of... Fatigue. Fatigue. Good job, fatigue. <laughs> ah, welcome back to the fatigue podcast. <laughs> Do you know how long it's been since we talked about fatigue? I know. It's been a while. It's been a minute. But this one's rare. So, I will say that this fatigue fracture, which is actually multiple fractures, doesn't look the way we normally think of fatigue, which yeah. is one smooth surface. It actually appears rather jagged in comparison, but the surfaces of each jagged edge are smooth. Yeah, so it's because it's made of a bunch of little cracks. Yes. So, because there was a bunch of little cracks, they made a bigger crack. So, the edges of the smaller cracks are smooth, are smooth but they make up the edge of the bigger crack crack which would be jagged because it's a bunch of tiny cracks yes correct see she got it she got it you described it well <laughs> thank you yeah that's my job <laughs> <laughs> the teeth closest to the break in the rim of the gear were very badly damaged from where the gear broke and was no longer synced with the pinion gear and the teeth of the pinion gear and the teeth of the ring gear were colliding and grating on each other lovely and look something like that between the sun gear shaft and the ring gear is a shim, and these three components are all connected with 24 bolts. There's a picture of the assembly on our website for reference, and yes, it is called an exploded view. It is an engineering term. It just means you see the order in which they're assembled. Right. Exploded. On the face of the ring gear flange that was facing the shim, the upper face, if you will, there was a groove formed by wear and corrosion. I'll get more into that in a bit. There was a matching groove on the shim. Why is this important? The groove created a stress concentration, which we haven't gone over in a while. No, we have not. A stress concentration is a location where the localized stress is significantly higher than the surrounding stress. And this is due to some kind of irregularity in the geometry or the material, which interrupts the flow of stress. For example, take a piece of paper and hold it in front of you as if you're reading it and hold it on the left and right sides, midway down the sheet, and pull. It's kind of hard to rip a piece of paper that way, but if you poked a hole in the middle or cut a vertical slit with a knife, it's suddenly a lot easier to tear apart. And that's because those faults in the paper create stress concentration points where the stress exceeds the strength of the paper even where it doesn't anywhere else. The groove did the same thing and allowed for a weakness in the flange of the gear, so the circumferential crack formed, though it didn't penetrate the full depth of the flange. Then the radial crack formed. When the radial crack became too great, the rest of the rim failed in overload, but still kept its shape because the flange held on for about a minute 
before the circumferential crack got worse from having to hold all of the stress, and then it cracked through the flange, allowing the gear to expand and clash against the pinion gear. Now, hold on a second. Why did I say a minute? The phenomenon was actually heard on the CVR. A sound analysis was done on the sound from the area microphone on the CVR and found harmonics with the fundamental frequency of 64.7 hertz. Now, that sounds really sciencey, but all it means is that something was spinning at 64 hertz loudly, and you could hear multiples of that. And I have an example. So here is 64.7 hertz. Pretty low. Yep. And then you'll hear harmonics of that. So, for example, here's the second harmonic added to it. So it changes it a little bit. A little bit. And so that's 129.4 hertz. So it just doubles it. And then you keep going. So you have 64.7 hertz, 129.4 hertz, 194.1 hertz, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. That's pretty normal to hear a few harmonics. And investigators found that 64.7 was the rotating frequency of the ring gear, which they found from a bunch of math in the gear system and the fact that the rotors were rotating at 221 revolutions per minute, or RPM. But 62 seconds before the end of the recording, the 12th harmonic of 64.7 hertz was heard, which is a pretty high frequency comparatively, at 776.4 hertz. Yeah. This was when the rim broke, but the gear was still spinning sort of normally. It was vibrating at a different timbre, highlighting that 12th harmonic until 0.6 seconds before the end of the recording, when all the noise got louder and the CVR stopped. Great. So the gap in the rim actually didn't cause gnashing of teeth between all the teeth of both gears. And investigators theorized that it was because the gap was the width of a tooth of one of the of the gear. Yeah. So what it did instead was change the gear ratio between the ring gear and the pinion gear, leading to the aft rotor overtaking the forward one, which would cause a collision in about 1.5 seconds. This explains why most of the tooth damage was near the gap. But that didn't line up with the 0.6 seconds of loud noise on the CVR. But if the gap was the width of two teeth, that was 0.6 seconds. So, that's how all the cracks happened. That's how the collision of the blades happened. But what really was the root of all this? It was that dang groove on the flange of the ring gear. So how did it get there? Investigators performed numerous tests on rotor systems in different weather conditions and found that in wet conditions over seawater with the high salinity that comes with marine conditions... The salt would reach the inside of the gear rotor and break down to chlorine, which has corrosive qualities on the gears despite the gears being shot-peened to resist corrosion. This effect was worsened by a factor of two when combined with the aluminum-bronze econol coating that the shim had. The gears developed fatigue cracks, wear, and grooves. How the heck was this certified with these issues? Yeah. Yeah. Previous versions of the ring-gear-shim combo had a solid shim, but that experienced fretting corrosion, which looks like pitting. It's, a, it's, it's pitted. So version 5, or dash 5, was developed, which had a scalloped shim. Ooh, fancy. Where the shim was thinner around the bolt holes, but it was coated in aluminum bronze econol, or albrec, I think. Which is a fretting-resistant coating. Good job! 
you, you did the thing. Cool. But then the bolts started reacting weird and would get looser over the time, even when you put a bolt locking glue like Loctite. So then it was mandated by the manufacturer that operators have to inspect the bolts every 300 flight hours and retighten them. That's pretty often. That's really often. And all of the operators hated it. I'm sure they did. That's a lot of bolts to have to check in a deep place. Yeah. I don't even know how much you have to take apart to do that. I can imagine a lot. So, we can't stop every 300 flight hours just to tighten some bolts. So the manufacturers created version dash 6, which went back to the solid shim, but kept the Albrecht coating and required a much higher torque when tightening the bolts. And then the 300 hour inspection requirement was eliminated. These new gears were certified after undergoing a 150-hour test to look for any potential shortcomings, like corrosion, even if it was just preliminary science. The manufacturers didn't feel the need to go too far into this because they had done more rigorous testing on the Dash 5 standard gears, and the materials in place were basically the same. Nothing material-wise changed. Yeah, except the Albrecht was on the entire shim, right? In Instead both, of in just both cases. around the holes? In both oh. cases. I thought it was just around the holes on the Dash 5. No, on the Dash 5, the scalloped edges are thinner yeah. around the bolts. That was the biggest difference. But then they, those started loosening the bolts, so we went back to the solid ones. But in any case, the materials didn't change, so they're like, okay, well, I mean, I don't think corrosive properties are really going to change, so we'll just do a 150-hour test and call it a day. Also, when they did this testing, they only did it on the aft transmission, not the Ford, because aft rotor was notorious for having all sorts of problems. So when it passed the aft one, they're like, okay, it must be fine. I mean, it is the drive aft, the yes. drive, drive one, so it makes more sense. Like, the drive shaft in particular but starts there. This didn't happen. Did it happen in the aft one? or it, no. it happened in the Ford one. Yeah. Which maybe you should have tested the Ford one, too. So, Turns here's out. where they were wrong. They certified the new gear on the aft transmission in relatively dry conditions. And they only did it on the aft one. Why was this different? The gear on the accident flight was on the Ford transmission, which gets more moisture because it's on the Ford side. And moisture yeah. gets swept away from the aft transmission. And this compounds the corrosion further than it would have on the aft end. By not testing multiple configurations and testing conditions, the certification of the new gear component did not catch the potential danger. And that is where I end. I feel like that was a really dumb mistake to make. I understand why Listen, they thought it. I understand why you think it, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't cover your butt yeah. and test it on the forward one, too. Correct. Just saying. And also, if you know the helicopters are going to fly over areas that are wet, you should make sure it's certified for wet conditions on both rotors because that's where they are. Yep. Yep. Just saying. And specifically saltwater conditions, because freshwater did just fine. Yep. Well, saltwater is the corrosion thing. Yes. Salt. Salt, which has chloride in it. Yep. Which starts breaking down some of these other compounds we talked about mm -hmm. really quickly. So that's all I got. I'm going to take a break, break. Break, break. And we'll be back. The holiday season is here. Have you started your shopping yet? If not, don't worry. We got a cool place for you to check out to buy unique gifts for your family and friends. Check out Wild Gallery. They're a small gallery based in Austin, Texas that sells original Native American art. 
Their art is a great way to decorate your place or to give as a great holiday gift to your friends and family. This is a great way to support a small business and give your loved ones something different for the holidays. Check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery. That's whiskey, yankee, lima, delta, dot gallery, where you can make an appointment to see art in person, learn more about the artist, and of course, shop. Again, check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery today. We're back. Let's do some findings, probable cause, and recommendations. Not a whole lot of these. This will be short. FYI. I figured it was pretty short and sweet. For findings, I do skip a handful that are less than relevant. Yeah, not relevant. Yes. They found that fatal injuries were sustained by all occupants except the captain and one passenger. Their survival and rescue was entirely fortuitous. Okay. Okay. That, that's a nice way of saying you're lucky bastards. Pretty much. I'm, I'm surprised they said that in a report. That it was entirely fortuitous. It just, it just seems... The two people that survived were like... I mean, to be fair, the sea that they dropped in, very cold. Yes. So if they had very been in cold. there any longer than that, they probably would have died from hypothermia. Yes. They found that the spiral bevel ring gears within some BV-234 transmissions, including Golf Bravo Whiskey Fruckstruck Charlie, had been modified to eliminate a loss of torque which was occurring on the bolts clamping the ring gear to the sun gear shaft. The manufacturer's service bulletin detailing the modification had received engineering approval from the FAA and was approved for embodiment into UK-registered aircraft by the CAA. They found that the spiral bevel ring gear in the forward transmission fractured and synchronization between the rotors was lost. The tip of the aft rotor blade struck the root end of the forward rotor blade, and the resultant forces tore the complete aft rotor assembly from the aircraft, which is pretty incredible, really. That's, like, unimaginable for me. It is yeah, quite honestly. The they found that the cockpit voice recorder tape showed an abnormal frequency signature throughout its duration. It could be identified as emanating from the forward transmission. The relevant harmonics increased in amplitude for the final 60 seconds. There was a general noise increase for the last 0.6 second. The abnormality was only audible to the crew for the final 60 seconds, by which time they were unable to take any action to prevent the accident. I was actually kind of surprised at that, because 60 seconds can be quite a while. It is quite a long time in the scheme of things, yes. But I guess if they didn't have any warnings going off, it's really hard to debunk a noise. Right. Yes. And correct. figuring out where it was coming from and what it was causing it. Yes. They found that modified spiral bevel ring gears, which were used in the forward transmission, consistently suffered wear and corrosion, which gave rise to conditions in which fatigue could readily initiate in the bolted joint flange. This is the Fatigue Podcast. Yes, hello! They found that the assumption made by the manufacturer and accepted by the FAA and CAA that the modified bolted joints in the forward and aft transmissions would behave similarly was wrong, although unmodified ones had behaved similarly in the past. So they're saying it's not impossible that this could have happened to the original version, but it's far more likely, apparently, with the new version. Version 5 versus version 6, right. by the way. Yes. I don't even know what version 1 looked like. <laughs> I don't know. We're Bad, just going off apparently. what they say. Apparently. They found that the, quote, in-service, end quote, inspection program, which was based on the results of tests on the aft transmission and previous service experience of both transmissions, was not adequate to reveal the impending failure of the forward bolted joint. Yeah, no kidding. 
And finally, they found that the condition monitoring of the transmissions might have given indications which could have prevented the accident, but suitable systems were not developed to the point where they were approved for operational use at the time of the accident. So, that. That's it for the findings. Well, that was sweet and short. So, the cause. Not probable. The cause. As according to the report. Yes. To the AAIB. The immediate cause of the accident was the failure of the modified spiral bevel ring gear in the Ford transmission, which allowed the twin rotors to collide when synchronization was lost. Underlying causes were the inadequacy of the hitherto accepted aircraft industry standard of test program carried out by the manufacturers and the insufficiently stringent inspection programs required by the FAA and the CAA. Wow. That was also short. Yes. You know what else is short? Recommendations. There are three. Oh, okay. (laughs) They take up a quarter of a page. Woo! So, they recommend that certification procedures be reviewed so that all modifications to vital components are adequately scrutinized and tested before approval and more closely monitored after their introduction into service. By the way, they figured this out because they did their own tests. A lot of them. For a long time. And then pretty much asked, hey, FAA, did you do these? And they were like, nah. No. So they did three separate versions of these tests. They did basically with certain substances, substance changes within the components and such that were within that ring gear assembly, the oils, the Loctite, etc., etc. Then they ran it with the moisture at the end, the salt water. And they found that that was by far and away the most significant change, and that is what caused the whole thing, basically. And that was after they did, like, 900 hours of testing on these aircraft, which was quite a bit. They recommend that the CAA should report on the progress that has been made towards the early incorporation of a specification for suitable condition monitoring systems into airworthiness requirements for helicopters and indicate the time scale and scope of likely developments. We'll talk about this one in a minute. Not now. Finally. Is that kind of like a QAR? Kind of. Okay. But... We'll get into it. We'll talk about it because it became kind of unnecessary. They recommend requirements relating to the ADELT equipment, including location, crashworthiness, protection, and power supplies be reviewed in light of this accident. Because several of the the safety features of this helicopter that were meant to survive these accidents, these kinds of accidents in water, did not. They were they did have two beacons on the helicopter that were supposed to help them find the wreckage. They didn't. One of them didn't work. Oh. Because it was damaged by the crash, which it's not supposed to do. And the other one worked. That's how they found it. So quickly. Relatively quickly. So that's it really for the recommendations. But let's talk about this because when they recommended, like, reporting monitoring Mm -hmm. systems for these helicopters, in specific, these Chinook helicopters, there's a recommendation further up in the report, actually, that they made suggesting that these helicopters not be used for commercial purposes ever because they were designed for military use and they were not designed to be flown day in and day out, all hours on end. That makes a lot of sense. That's why, shortly after this crash, British International Helicopters dissolved into British Airways and they got rid of all these helicopters almost immediately. There are still a few of these flying, actually, from British International Helicopters. They belong to the Firefighting Services in Oregon. Wow. Yep, they still exist. That was not where I expected them to be. I know, just a few of them, but they do exist. 
Yeah, but that that's still not commercial service, so... No. They don't fly them day in, day out. They use them on rare occasions. No, they definitely got have been used uh, recently. Yes, definitely. But that said, so the point is, is they determined that the Chinook was not at all designed to be flown day in, day out, especially in these conditions, for commercial use. So they could not hold up to these conditions, period. And that's why, basically, the route fix for this whole problem was not flying these helicopters commercially ever again. Well. And that pretty much solved the whole problem because they had already redesigned this whole ring gear thing in the hopes that it would withstand a longer amount of time, and it didn't. It got worse. And they were like, okay, there's no fix for this because this helicopter wasn't designed for this. It was designed for military use, which is occasional. So... Stop using it. So they stopped using it. I'm assuming militaries still use them. Yes. But there's newer versions of the Chinook now with... Better ring gears? I don't know about that. (laughs) Can't speak to that. But what I can tell you is there's newer versions of the Chinook, and uh, they have different names now, but there's newer versions of these helicopters that probably can withstand a bit more than these could. They're still not going to be commercially used. So that's it. Okay. Uh, The whole thing about this is way too complicated for me to remember, so... Yeah, it's the 1986 British International Helicopters Chinook Crash. Okay, there you go. Or Golf, Bravo, Whiskey, Foxtrot, Charlie. Yes. That's a lot. Anyway, thanks for listening. As always, thanks to our patrons. You guys are amazing and awesome. If you want to become a patron, all you have to do, you can look on the website, or you can look us up on Patreon. We'll pop right up. You can also see everything that's included on Patreon. Like, you can see all the posts and stuff. You just can't listen to them unless you're a patron. So, right. if you would like to do that, those are your options. If you don't, we would appreciate if you would subscribe to the show, share it with your friends and family, give us a review. It helps the podcast get to other people. Yep. So, there you go. And to those of you who have already done that, thank you. Thanks. And that's about it, right? That's it. All right. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. We'll catch all you guys next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.